story, and I find a good story sticks in my memory. And so I'll just tell you a little bit about our Friday night sleepover at our house, because it turned out to be a not-so-good story, but you'll probably remember it. And um, what I decided to do, it was a holiday, so I thought I'd have the cousins over for a sleepover. So I had all of them, and um, we have one little unique guy in our family, and his name's Micah, and he's a four-year-old, and um, it's never a good idea to have a four-year-old at a sleepover. It's even worse an idea to have Micah to sleep over. Um, I'm going to have to block this YouTube <laughs> clip. Um, but he's an amazing little guy. His view of life is just very different, and he's not naughty. He's just got a very creative way of thinking about things, and he lands up always doing things from a different angle. And um, when we, firstly, what happened is I was running a bath for him and Alexander to hop in, and um, he said to me, he was behind me, and he was digging in the bath toys, and I was running the water, I was over it, and I said, he said, I want to play with some bath toys. So I said, okay, just choose a few and throw them in. And next thing, I was getting pelted with toys from every angle. And these toys, I was like, why, why is he throwing? And then I was like, wait, I told him to throw them in. And so he took it literally. And then the next thing is it was bedtime and I had nailed bedtime. I was like baby in the room by herself, three toddlers in the room by themselves, the preteen and the teenage three in the lounge and the other two in the dining room under the dining room table. And there were just kids everywhere. And so I thought, okay, divide and conquer, start with the toddlers. So I went and, and they were all feeling a little bit nervous about sleeping far away from home. And so Micah just said, I actually can't go to sleep. So I said, why not, Micah? I said, all you do is you just lie down, you close your eyes. And he said, I don't know how to close my eyes. <laughs> so this is a four-year-old who's never slept in his life before, clearly. So I said, Micah, you just go like this. And I was trying to show him, and he went, I just can't do it. So I said, well, then just lie in bed and wait until something happens to your eyes. It's going to happen, I promise you. And so he kind of obeyed. And I went into the room, and he was like not lying on the mattress. He was lying across with his feet on the mattress and his head on the floor. Um, and then the next morning, we, had, we were taking them on an outing to the beach, which was also very brave to take eight kids to the beach. But um, we were getting them ready. And so I was running around making a flask of hot chocolate, and I promised them it was going to be fun. And so I sent them all out the front door to play outside. Now, I had actually Micah-proofed the garden before. I'd walked around, and I kind of was going, what would Micah do? Okay, I'll take this. Shop objects gone, weed thingy gone, everything gone, fertilizer hidden away, things fenced off. And I'd literally... you become really creative when you're trying to kind of micro-proof a place. So then I walked around and so I in my kind of, in my mind, thought that everything would be okay just letting them out the back front door and saying just play. And um, a little while later someone said, Micah fell and he was whimpering and he was holding his hand and I said, what did you do? And I looked at his hand and so our wrist kind of goes like that. His was in an S shape and so it was like that and down like that. And I'm like, shucks. And so I'm trying to act like I'm not too scared and, and Jono was with Callista getting her ready and so I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And so I thought, okay, act calm. So I'm like, Micah, what were you doing? And he said, I was climbing on the roof of the monkey bars. Now if you know monkey bars, they don't have a roof. <laughs> he, he had decided that monkey bars were best done from the top and so he had tried as a four-year-old to go across on the top and it hadn't worked well and he'd fallen onto a platform and he broke his arm and landed up in surgery yesterday <laughs> so that was our sleepover <laughs> He's okay. <laughs> His arm's fine, and I actually was really distressed yesterday. I can laugh about it now. We're all okay. Um, there were sincere apologies made. Now, the chances are that you will probably remember that story more than you will remember what I preached about tonight, because there's something that resonates and connects 
with our heart, a human heart, with our minds when we tell a story. And the amazing thing is, is that God has given us a story that he wants us to share, and it's a way that we can engage with the world. And if you think of the power of a story, think about the first book that you fell in love with as a kid. Mine was Roald Dahl, maybe you had one, um, and just great stories seem to last a lifetime. They're passed from generation to generation. A lot of the authors that you maybe enjoyed as a child, or even now, might not even be alive, because a story will just get passed down from generation to generation because it is powerful and people want to tell it. People want to hear about it. And so it's amazing to think that, that we have something powerful that we can engage the world with because they love a story. But I was thinking about what is the power of a story. And the first thing is that a story can give credibility to something. And that's kind of an unusual concept that how can something that's kind of told add credibility? But a guy called Jeff Colvin wrote this. He says, we wired for interpersonal connections and put more stock in ideas that result from personal contact than from hard data. Essentially, we internalize stories much better than we do facts. And the way he proved it is that he had pointed to a study of people who had done jury duty, and he'd looked at what persuaded them to come to the conclusions that they had reached and the decisions that they had made. And they would have expert witnesses coming in, and they'd have expert witnesses giving hard data. They'd just give them kind of things, facts, and, and kind of just you know, kind of tell them what needed to be told. And then you'd have ones who came to share from personal clinical experience, and they would share stories. And stories always trumped in terms of swearing the jury. Isn't it amazing that there's, the jurors just a story had so much power to change their minds? And I don't know if you've ever had that in your own life. Maybe you've had a conversation with someone about something that you really were trying to understand, a concept that you were trying to kind of wrap your mind around. So not just a life decision of what should I do, where should I go, but something quite important. It could be your health, I don't know, your, what you believe, your exercise routine. And someone tells you something from experience. I did this and I tried this and this is what happened because I read it in a book and I did this. And, and all of a sudden, you kind of put a lot of value on that because that person read it, you believe it, and, and you put it into action. And so people's stories can even help us change our minds. Then stories can also connect with the heart. And if you think about it, that, that those, just those kind of like maybe family stories that get told to you and get passed down, and, and there's something quite special about stories connecting with the heart. Um, I remember when I, I w used to learn through stories, so my mom was always trying to teach me through stories to remember things. And so the one mistake I made is, is that I, um, in one of my exams, she had told me an elaborate story about the Suez Canal, because I couldn't remember Suez Canal. So she talked about sewage going in the Suez Canal, and so so in my class, in my exam, I wrote the sewerage canal. <laughs> that got me naught. Um, <laughs> and then another one was my geography teacher who, who told me, he was telling the class how there was this dream to build a road from Cape to Cairo. And just that there was this whole thing, this, um, I think it was the Pan-African Highway or whatever. And so he had spoken about it and he said, and now the N1 goes from Cape Town to Cairo. And I didn't get it. That was like he was being sarcastic or I don't know. It's, I, I just didn't get it. And so I took it as fact. If your geography teacher tells you there's a road that leads from Cape to Cairo and it's the N1, why would he lie to you or tell you junk? So I didn't think much about it. I just remember him telling us a story. And years later, I'd started working at the church and it was about 2001 or so. And I was at, you know, so I was quite a bit older and I was at a, a bride. Someone had, was speaking about their dream to get on a motorbike and go from Cape to Cairo. And I went, oh, wonderful. You're going to use the N1. <laughs> 
<laughs> I look like quite the, the fool. <laughs> but stories just kind of, they do hit our heart and we remember them. And I always remember things that were told to me in a story. And those ones stick, even if it makes you look like a foolish. <laughs> stories can spark interest as well. But if we, we leave them alone, they will also die. And so there's something about a story that can get us reading more and understanding more. And I don't know if you've ever done this. If you've, if you've um, read a book about maybe a historical novel or something that's just got you reading a whole lot more about, um, about a certain place. I was reading a book about a, a leper colony on an island, and the next thing I was becoming an expert on leprosy and how it was treated and, you know, in those times. And because I just, it was so interesting that I just started reading more and more and more. And that's what stories can do. They can spark interest in people and ignite, ignite their hearts. But in the same, when we don't tell them, those stories are forgotten and they decay. It can also make con a complex conce concepts simple. And so if you think about it, when, you, when you're trying to explain something to someone and you, you kind of tell them a story, it, it sometimes helps, especially if you're an expert. And I don't know if you've anyone tried to explain something to you with all the jargon and, um, and confusing concepts, and I kind of tend to blank out and just go, yeah, and smile and nod my head. But if someone kind of breaks it down and can tell you something interesting around it, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. There was a guy called Richard Betts who was a, now I've got this word wrong, sommelier. Do you know what that is? It's a wine expert. There's like 200 or so in the world, and they're so, they're so knowledgeable in wine that they can taste a bottle of wine from a random farm in a random area from a random year, and they can kind of pin it down to exactly where it came from. And I was reading this really interesting article years ago about this one that they were testing, and he kind of got 100% accuracy wines from all over the world. So these guys are real wine experts or wine snobs. And he, what he did is he wrote a, a, a fictional novel around... Um, around wines, but it helped people to understand. And he, instead of making wine this more complicated thing than it should be, he broke it down into three things. He said wine could be understood and defined by three things, the fruit, the wood, and the earth. And then he breaks it down. And so all of a sudden, people who don't know how, or understand wine kind of understand, oh, that makes sense, okay, and can kind of throw a few things out at a dinner party to look cool. So it can kind of make us and help us understand things. I had the same thing. I had my three teen, preteen um, kids in the car with me yesterday when we did land up going to the beach eventually. And so we were talking about... Uh, this is like the really deep stuff in life. We were talking about dog years and how old our dog was. And so I said, okay, but here's the curveball. If the dog was born on a leap year, how old would it be? Because it's one year for every seven years, but then if you're in a leap year, you only have a birthday every four years. And they were like, oh, it's holidays. We can't do this. I was like, no, you can. And so then I started to tell them a story. And all of a sudden, I had all of them working out how old a dog who's born in a leap year would actually be. Um, and so you can really, you can make, Complex things, quite simple. And that is complex for a grade six. Okay. It also disarms the listener. And so a story can have a relaxing kind of disarming effect. If you think about David, when he had to confront, um, no, sorry, Nathan, when he had to confront David, he goes to David, and David's the king, Nathan's the prophet, and he has to speak to Nathan, David about sin in his life. That is a very threatening thing for a prophet to go to a king and confront him. And so what Nathan does is he very smartly comes in with a story, and he says to him, he says to him, and he gives him this whole story, and then David reacts to the story, and he says, David, you that man. And all of a sudden, David's made aware of his sin. Do you see how that story just disarmed David and so he could hear? If he hadn't, it would have gone very differently. 
And I also had another experience where I just saw the disarming power of a story. And I was trying to understand Alexander a little bit better. And I wasn't sure, you know, in the water crisis, he's terrible twos had him going to the taps. He had learned how to turn a tap on. And so he was going to the taps and sneaking into the bathroom and switching them on and saying in the name of washing his hands, because that's a good thing. Um, and so you go, I was just trying to wash my hands. And you don't know how long the tap's been left on for two minutes, half an hour, an hour. And obviously in water restrictions, it was just making us cringe. So we would keep the door closed. But lo and behold, the one time it was left to open, if we had a guest or whatever, he would get in and that would be the time he would go back, turn the tap on. And I wanted to figure out like how harsh I needed to be and, and try and assess, does this, has he started to understand sin? Because he's coming up with some pretty good sinful ideas here. And so I sat him on my lap and I actually didn't intentionally, the idea just came to me as, as, it, as it happened. <laughs> and so I was talking to him because I just tell him stories from time to time. And so we were doing a bedtime story and he was sitting on my lap and I said to him, oh, there's this little boy and his parents left, you know, his mom wanted to go shopping and so she, she, wanted, she took the sister and he said he wanted to stay at home. And I said, and the minute his mom's car left the driveway, he did a very naughty thing. And I said to him, Alexander, what did he do? And he said he ran to the bathroom and he switched the taps on and then he ran to the cupboard and he ate chocolate. And then I'm like, nailed, you know what sin is. <coughs> So, like the poor little boy didn't even realize that that night he helped to up the temperature on, on punishment. But they just say it doesn't happen that much anymore. Um, and then a well-told story can hold our attention and allows a storyteller to complete a story and make a point. And if you think about it, when you'll hear someone's story, and people often actually respect and honor a story, and they'll, they'll let you finish, um, if you think in apologetics, it's a very good and powerful thing. That is defending our faith. And if you've heard any of the great minds debate, but, but often what happens is that these great thinkers are going in to defend their point of view. And they're not going in to listen and hear and change their minds. They're going to defend what they believe. And so it's kind of like a sparring match. I was thinking about in, in, um, in Parliament, imagine if, if instead of having these debates that can land up in fights and angry words, imagine if people just went and told their stories and parliament and and all of a sudden said and now you understand why we're trying to pass this this bill well now you understand why we're trying to do that imagine if people did that it would be so disarming because we respect and honor stories and um and that's the same with with your testimony your story that you can share people will often let you finish that more than if you just start giving them facts I remembered Speaker's Corner in, in London. I heard a guy speaking, and he was on his soapbox, and he was preaching, and he had come to kind of save the UK um, from, from, I won't tell you which country. And um, so he was preaching up a storm, and he said, God is a God of love, and all that. And so there had just been a, a natural disaster, and so someone chirped from the, from the crowd and said, if God was a God of love, you know, how did he allow this to happen? And the guy looked at him and went, shut up, I'm preaching. And then he carried on, and the guy chirped him again, he went, shut up, I'm preaching. That was, he wasn't going to convert anyone that way. And that wasn't going to, it was just doesn't work that way. And so it's amazing that maybe if someone had stood on their soapbox and told their story, maybe people would have listened a little bit more. And the amazing thing and the thing that I want to encourage you today with is that you do have a powerful story. 
You've got a story that you need to be telling the world. It's your most important story. If you know and love God, if you've stepped into relationship with Him, there's a story that He wants you to tell others, and that's your testimony. And we call it that. It's just a testimony. It's just a, you know, another word for just how we've, like what God has done in our lives, what He's doing, what He has done, and, and just giving glory to God and, and kind of pointing to who He is. A testimony isn't about ourselves. It's not about who, how great we are. It's a pointing to God, and that's a powerful thing. And so we're going to look at just how we can share our testimonies and what ways we can share. And so, um, and, and just look at what God wants to do through us. And the first kind of testimony, probably the most important, is a testimony of salvation. And it's how you came to faith. And I don't know about you, but um, when I was growing up, they used to have things called youth rallies. And so it was just like this kind of event. And what would usually happen is they would call a, a speaker who had this most magnificent testimony. And it was usually a testimony about, you know, how terrible their life was and like the worse they were before they became a Christian, the better the testimony, the more crowds they would pull. And so this was just, this, you know, and we'd all leave going like, wow, that person was so funny or they told a story, right? Or whatever. No one left saying God is amazing because they'd spend the last five minutes quickly saying, and you need to turn to God and you need to do this. And um, that's not what a testimony is all about. A testimony of salvation is just a clear message of what God has done and what he can do in your life. And I just want to take from Acts 22, Paul's story, because he has an amazing way of doing it where he does speak about his past. He does bring it in, but he also speaks about what God has done and, and sets an amazing example. Acts 22. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city. I studied under Gamaliel, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I've even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to, me, to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what you are waiting for, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And then he speaks about how God sent him and how he responded. 
And this, the first thing to note there is that, and, and how it ends, is that it actually isn't well received. So I started saying that stories are fairly well received by people, but, but in this situation, it wasn't. And the one thing we need to know is that not every story, not every testimony we share will be well received. And so we mustn't be discouraged. We still need to honor God with what we say. But in that, there are also a few things that we need to speak about and remember. When we're sharing our testimony, it's worth writing it down and actually kind of just having a basic outline of what you want to share with people if you ever get the chance to share your faith because we do need to honor it. The flip side of it is, and that was also my point, but how I made it last week is that sometimes we, we've done these courses that can so complicate it. I did one on, on sharing your faith and then you had to do a practice round on someone and I did a practice round on two kids and they were like, yo, we want to become Christians. And I was like, what do I do now? I hadn't done that part of the course and I was stumped. I was a teenager at the time, passionate about sharing the gospel, but, but fairly clueless um, because I thought it all had to, like, I had to, like, kind of tick every box. And I think, you know, the Holy Spirit is the first helper that we have. And so we need to rely on Him. But we also need to be responsible with what we share and we need to kind of give a good message of salvation if we're going to be sharing our testimony. We need to represent God well. Not that, like, come as you are, you don't need to change or some of the common mistakes we can make that sometimes if we haven't prepared can just fly out our mouths if we haven't, if we haven't prepared properly. So we need to prepare. We need to point to the work of God. We need to point to the cross. We need to point to what repentance means and what it means to step over from death to life and how God can change lives. And so it doesn't need to be complicated. You don't need to have done a course to share your faith. Paul hadn't. But as you can see, and if you look at that scripture and just how he shares it, it's constantly pointing to who God is and what he did and how he responded to God. And as much as you think that people might be alienated when they hear that story, it is a very interesting story to hear. It's something that we can hear quite regularly in a church context, but just remember that people who don't know God don't hear those sort of stories often. So don't undermine the power of your testimony of salvation. It is the first and foremost important testimony that God wants us to share. But it doesn't, uh, but as I said, when it, it's not always well received, and this is a thing. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so some won't actually, you won't always get the results, but that's not why we tell our story. <laughs> it's up to God to get the results. And then also not to undermine, if you, you don't feel like your testimony is this amazing one, maybe you have grown up in the church and maybe you, you were led into a process of accepting God and, and stepping over and maybe you were very young when you did and you didn't have this, this huge story before. That is one of the most beautiful stories I know, that from childhood you've known God and you haven't had to be kind of rescued, um, you know, that, that you actually just you gently were groaning because you had parents that honored God, because your faith was handed down. That is such a beautiful testimony. That is one that people might just go, wow, I wish I had that. Why, didn't, why wasn't I told that sort of thing? Um, if we read in 2 Timothy 3, this is what Paul tells Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures, God breathes, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And isn't that such a beautiful picture that you can be so beautifully equipped from the time you are young to share your faith? Don't undermine it. It's a story that so many want to hear. 
Then the next one is your testimony of suffering. And suffering can have a way of just highlighting what's in our hearts. If you've seen someone suffer, it can sometimes make people incredibly bitter and angry, selfish, uh, jealous, self-destructive. Um, it really has a way of, of kind of showing what's in our hearts and exposing what's in our hearts. So when the world sees you suffering differently and hears about how you've gone through hard times and approached them, that can be an incredible testimony that you can share to an unbelieving world. 2 Corinthians 11 is, is Paul's story of, of his suffering. And if, he, if anyone had something to write about, it was him. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And so here he's just sharing. I mean, this guy has had a hand, like, like a paragraph full of things happened to him that he could share. And I've just, this has happened to me, this has happened to me, this has happened to me. But then he just speaks about his burden for the church. And it's not about all these things that have happened to him, but God has always been faithful. And that was his message the whole time. But God is worth it. He is who he says he is. And in, to the Corinthians, they were, they were much like they, like, we are today, the unbelieving world. When Paul walks into Corinth, he sees um, the Acro Corinth, and I'd gone to um, Corinth last year, and it was amazing to see this high, this high mountain where all the temple prostitutes were, and they would come down into the city. And there was even that verb to Corinthian size, because, did I get it right? Corinthian size. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Anyway, <laughs> um, you know what I mean. And so, um, so, Basically, they were just used to having every pleasure they wanted, and that was all about self, self-preservation, self-pleasure. And so for someone to come in and speak about suffering, it would have been so, they would have been unaccustomed to it that suffering is actually okay. And if you think about the generation we're living in, it is about hedonism, self, self-pleasure, self-actualization, kind of making sure everything is wonderful for me and I can have the best life I can. And Paul comes in with a different message. In fact, he says this. <laughs> That's the anointing. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> There's extra power. Listen to this. God wants you to. <laughs> um, this is what he says when he walks into Corinth. This was his, his mission. As he walks into the city on this road, seeing the, the temple um, and, and seeing the, the kind of high places and, and that sort of thing, he says this. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, which a lot of us might feel. Maybe you don't have the eloquence or the human wisdom. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God, not a testimony of ourselves, a testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Can you say that about your workplace, about school, about wherever you find yourself? I've resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. <laughs> Try to tell your parents that when you're trying to study for you, when they want you to study for exams. Sorry, I've resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. <laughs> um, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, 
so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And that's so beautiful. And that's a story that we all have to share. And are you convinced about it, that when you're going through tough times, that you're just kind of getting material, stories that you can share about God's goodness? And not every Christian is convinced that God is completely good. And he is who he says he is. If you speak to people that are going through tough times, you can sometimes get a very different story. So I just want to encourage you in the way that you suffer, the way that you go through hard times, that can speak to an unbelieving world. And sometimes it even helps me to suffer because sometimes I'll just be so caught up in things and I'll think, wait, what am I going to say about this on the other end? How am I going to tell people about it? And sometimes even changes the way that I suffer because I realize that sometimes I too easily give in to emotions when I was going through a tough time. God calls us to suffer differently. Paul gave us a great example of how to suffer differently. And then there's the testimony of death. And this is quite an, an interesting one, but I was thinking about it, and I was just thinking about the, some of the funerals and memorial services I've been to in the last few years, and just what a testimony it's been to a packed-out church of people who didn't know God. It's probably been one of the times where we've had the most unbelievers in our church is actually at funerals. And just the things that were said about certain members of our church who, who just walked a road serving God, who who people, like whoever came up, would speak about these people with consistency. And the message was always, they loved God, they loved their family, they had integrity, they loved people, they were honest in the workplace, they did their job well, they did it with excellence. And to me, just looking at these people, and a lot of them have lived, uh, you know, kind of been around a lot longer than I have, that was such a beautiful testimony. And I was thinking about how that would speak to non-Christians who had been sitting in the, in the congregation, in the, in the church, And I just thought, you know, those things don't just happen in a day. You're kind of gathering things for your final testimony throughout your life. Your funeral will be your final testimony. And what are people going to be saying? Are they going to be saying that word of, he was a man of faith, he was this, he was that, and is it going to speak to people that are sitting there? And just if you look at the stoning of Stephen and just how he responds, and before... Before this part of the story that I'm going to read, he's sitting and he's sharing his faith. He's talking about God, and he's sitting before the Sanhedrin, and then all of a sudden, um, the, the crowd turns on him, and they decide to stone him. And this is his account. And Saul, when he speaks about his testimony earlier, actually includes this in his account. He says, I was even the guy when they were stoning Stephen, who was holding the robes. I was looking after the clothes while everyone was throwing the stones. I was going, you know, fantastic. So he was the one who witnessed this particular event. Now look at Stephen's testimony and think if this would also have been instrumental in, in Saul's kind of journey. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard us, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against me. When he said this, he fell asleep. And imagine the, the people who had stoned Stephen, what they would have gone home thinking. Those words that he spoke, his final words would have been such a testimony to who God was. And they couldn't have, I don't know, I mean, it seemed to have made them even more angry, but they couldn't have left 
without those words resonating in their mind that night. I'm wondering if when they went to sleep, that was just what they were thinking about because that was the ultimate testimony. And so how are you living your life so that when you die, people will hear your final testimony? And so it doesn't make, you know, for some you might be still scared of death in the process. We still grieve. It's still a sad process. But there's hope in it too. And it's not just the hope of the afterlife. It's a hope that even in your death it can be used to give glory to God. And then lastly, just a testimony of a transformed life. And I think about how in life we, we constantly should be getting ammunition. If you're walking closely to God, you should be constantly getting stories that you can relate to other people and that you can tell about the goodness of God and who He is. And I've even found it amazing how God often pairs me with people who I can share a story that, of something that has just happened and is quite relevant to, to what they're going through. And I've been a little bit more intentional, especially last year. I found I had a lot more opportunities because I was looking for them. And I found people were actually very willing to listen. And so just constantly gathering those stories. One of the most amazing things that we can actually share is if you've gone through failure, people love to hear stories of failure because they can actually connect with it because we all fail. And people have accused Christians of being hypocrites. So when they hear a Christian being honest about their faith and saying, you know, this is what I did, this is how I failed, but this is a decision I made. Maybe you grew up in church and then drifted from church and then came back to God. That is a powerful testimony because many people have done that. You'll be surprised in your workplace so wherever you find yourself, that there's so many people who actually do have a church background, although they seem so unchurched, and they will hear your story and just go, oh, that resonates with me. And so stories of just maybe how we've blown it, but God has restored us, can be a, t a powerful one. Testimonies of how God gives you joy. Why are you different? Sometimes people ask that, like, why do you seem to ha so happy? Why does your family seem so together? And those are those ones that we can kind of give a reason for the hope that we have, the reason for the joy we have, the reason why we have the fruit of the Spirit, why we can love people who are unlovable. You can share stories of integrity, how you were maybe tempted to do something, but then God reminded you, and how he honored you in that. Stories of answered prayer, stories of miracles, stories of a verse that you've just read this week that became relevant and alive to you. Just remember, people aren't reading the Bible. So when they hear, well, people that you're sharing your testimony with, so when they hear you say a verse, it's also not going to be normal to them. And for them, that little, those two sentences that you might share and just say, I read this, and this is what God did in my life. Maybe he could do it for you. I'll pray for you. That can be a testimony too. The testimony of just life stages, how you met your spouse. I found that when I was pregnant, people just come up to you and they start touching your belly and getting in your space, and it was really irritating me. And then I started to actually use it as a, as a time to testimony, because, kind of to give a testimony, because we had been battling for a few years to fall pregnant, and I think it was four or five years, and um, we're just feeling really disheartened. And funny enough, I was praying with someone in this church, and the person said to me, I believe we're going to have kids at the same time. And I was like, yeah. And then, you know what, so I, she had an operation, uh, no, sorry, I had an operation, and I was like, no, mm, it's not going to happen, and, you know, for a long time now, and then I heard she was pregnant. And all of a sudden, I, was, I just thought, God hasn't answered that prayer. Like, we're not going to be pregnant at the same time. I'm still healing, and I'm still, and, and then next thing, I took a pregnancy test, and I was pregnant. So clearly, I wasn't that <laughs> messed up from the operation. But, um, but, but basically, it was such an answer to prayer, because God had, our babies were due on the same day. We had been praying together, our babies were due on the same day. And so that was such an answer to prayer that God was completely faithful. So many people who weren't Christians, I was able to tell that story to, 
and we just like just went wow isn't that amazing that's just a life stage story it could be how you met your spouse it could be just what god how you coped with something those are amazing stories don't undermine them look for ammunition the whole time and these are the kind of things that if you're praying if you're reading your bible if you're journaling you're going to remember if you aren't intentional about it you're going to forget these stories i even forget about the baby one now because it's kind of a few years later and so you need to keep on reminding yourself of the goodness of god 2 Timothy 1 says this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, in prison, or me his prisoner. So don't be ashamed. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel, by the power of God, he saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality, or immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel has appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I've believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. God wants to do such a beautiful thing through you. Just protect it, run with it, go for it. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's beautifully something we don't need to do by ourselves. It's so beautiful that we have the Holy Spirit to go before us. And that's the most important thing. This isn't a story you tell alone. It's not a story about us. It's not a story set in you know, kind of our power, but it's a story of a changed life. And I read this one quote, it said, if a story of a changed life is all, um, if a story of a changed life is all we got, then it ain't much. And what he was saying by this is that you have so many people who have stories of something that's changed their life, a product they've used, a program they've joined, a something they've done, or a relaxation technique, or some meditation they've done, a group that they've joined, whatever it is. And so it's not just about a changed life. It's more than that. You're telling them about how God changed your life, what he has done, who he is, how great he is, how the story overcomes. So this isn't just your average story that you're telling people. I've told you a lot of average stories, but it's a story about God and his greatness. Revelation 12 verse 11 is what I'm going to end with. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. And just such a beautiful thing of just how your testimony can overcome. It can overcome the evil one. Remember, he's the accuser. He's constantly accusing and kind of saying the bad things. Your testimony says God is good and God is great. So there's power in your testimony. And I'm just going to pray that God empowers us to share our testimonies, to share what he's doing with others. So, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you that there's power in the testimony. Lord, we thank you that you want us to share and engage with the world. And Lord, we don't want to get stuck in circles where we don't ever have a chance to share with people who don't know you. So Lord, help us to step out into the world. Help us not to shrink back. Give us boldness. Give us power. 
Give us opportunities, Lord. We're serious about sharing our faith. Just help us. Lord, we thank you for this community of, and so many stories here of what you've done in our lives, and we trust you for even more. Lord, we trust you that even at the end of the series, we'll have testimonies of just how you've used this church to impact the community, Lord. So just be with us and empower us now. Amen.